Hi, I'm Michael Hawk, and welcome to Nature's Archive Podcast, where I interview some of the most interesting and creative people on the forefront of conservation, ecology, birding, and environmental education. If you have a fascination with the natural world, this podcast is for you. My promise to you is that you'll not only learn what my guests have accomplished, but also how and why. And I also promise that you'll learn plenty of fascinating things about the nature that surrounds us. So give it a listen. And if you truly care about the environment and enjoyed what you heard, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or your favorite service, and share this episode with a friend. Thank you. My guest today is Dr. Jarrett Daniels. Dr. Daniels is a professor specializing in Lepidoptera research and insect conservation at the University of Florida and is curator of Lepidoptera at the Florida Museum of Natural History. In addition to that, Dr. Daniels is the author of over a dozen books that help connect the general public to butterflies, insects, and gardening for wildlife. These include titles such as Backyard Bugs, Insects and Bugs for Kids, and Native Plant Gardening for Birds, Bees, and Butterflies, which is a series of regionally specific books. In this episode, we dive into Dr. Daniels' ability to connect with the public and how he flips the switch between academic endeavors and authoring for the general public. We discuss some of his specific books, and I have links to all of those in the show notes. He outlines why creativity is so important for public outreach. Along those lines, he tells us about the butterfly-themed beer partnership with First Magnitude Brewing, which even uses yeast from a butterfly. Dr. Daniels also discusses some of his conservation activities and successes, including helping to restore the federally listed Shouse's Swallowtail, which only lives in tropical hardwood hammock habitats in southeast Florida. This restoration also involved important efforts from community science or citizen science, doing hard work monitoring populations in very challenging environments. This butterfly occupies a limited geographic range, meaning it is vulnerable to both habitat loss and storms such as hurricanes. Dr. Daniels discusses the recovery plan and how they intend to make the Shouse's swallowtail populations more resilient. As you know, I love to highlight ways we can make non-traditional spaces more wildlife friendly, and this is a specialty of Dr. Daniels. We hear about how Dr. Daniels worked with the Florida Department of Transportation to demonstrate that reduced mowing frequency along roadsides was a win-win-win for drivers, the department, and insects. And to support homeowners looking to make better plant choices, Dr. Daniels is collaborating to create a wildlife-friendly plant certification program. Additionally, Dr. Daniels reveals some surprising findings from studying attractiveness of various home landscapes in Florida. The short story is you need to plant larger quantities of fewer good plants, and you'll create a better habitat than if you had lots of varieties, say, with just one specimen of each species. All in all, this was really an enlightening discussion on a number of fronts. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. So without further delay, Dr. Jarrett Daniels. Dr. Daniels, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. When I was looking at your bio and preparing for this interview, I just saw this huge background of both academic and educational outreach. You're an author and just very prolific in a number of different areas. So one of the challenges for today was to figure out where to focus. Maybe a good starting point would be, how did you discover nature and insects in the first place? Well, that's a great question. And I think many biologists would go back to a time when they were young, where they had either a really interesting experience or they had an encounter with a an individual that kind of turned them on to nature. And so for me, I grew up in rural Wisconsin, just south of Milwaukee, and my parents had a, about a seven acre property. And so it was a, a natural place to, to go out and explore. And I could take walks and hikes all around through woods and fields. And so it was just a natural exploration. And I always gravitated towards insects because they were just, you know, really fascinating and cool, especially as a kid. But probably one of the kind of sentinel moments that turned me on is my, my grandfather lived about a mile away and he had a large a silver maple tree and he would collect these Cecropia caterpillars, Cecropia moth caterpillars, and bring them over to me in coffee tins. And I would raise those up until they emerged as a moth. And when I first saw that happen, I was completely sold. This was the coolest thing I had ever seen. And even today, the smell of coffee kind of reminds me of those experiences. So it was you know, just a, a combination of things, but seeing it happen and unfold right before your eyes was just the neatest thing to me. And that just completely turned me on. How big are those caterpillars? Uh, they're about six inches oh, wow. uh, and they have these kind of red and yellow tubercles, these spiny little nodules on their backs. And you could sit out underneath this huge tree and you could hear the frass, the poop falling from the branches onto the driveway. And so you could gauge where the caterpillars were and 
my grandfather thought this was the neatest thing too, because he never really paid much attention before I was interested. So it's, it shows how one person's interest can turn your whole family onto something. Yeah. And I'm thinking back to my childhood. We had a couple of silver maples, one in our front yard, one in our backyard. And as did most of our neighbors, it seems like that's what they planted in that subdivision. And I never saw one of those moths, but we, we used to get these little, we call them maple worms. And I have no idea what species that would have been. Yeah. It could have been a rosy maple moth, which are pretty common, but that's a, it's a common host plant uh, for a lot of different insects, but it was a great experience. And I started with moths initially and used to rear a lot of different things and go out and pretty much collect anything I could and try to watch it and rear it. And that was just a, a huge exercise for me and a lot of fun. And you know, I was really fortunate in that my parents were very supportive. They would buy me field guides. My first field guide was actually the golden book for butterflies and moths because my dad worked at Western Publishing and used to love looking at that and then just going out and trying to find anything I could. Maybe a leap to a conclusion here, but you've authored a number of books. Is that family history of working in publishing part of how you got into authorship? I don't know. I probably not directly, but I, I used to love field guides as a kid and still do. And I think the value of being an academician is we lead pretty great lives. We can do research. We work with students and other faculty. It's a great career, but you realize that when you publish a scientific paper, you're lucky if 10 or 15 people read that paper. Whereas if you work on a, a popular book, there are hundreds or thousands of people that you can reach with that type of publication. And for me, working in conservation, it, it's really important to get other people interested in the natural world and to explore and to understand why these organisms really matter. And so for me, it's just a great way of, of reaching those audiences and particularly for homeowners or kids and families that is where it started for me. So if I have the opportunity where my books can serve the same role, where they can excite a family or a younger individual to get out in nature and look and explore and maybe eventually become an entomologist, that's a huge reward. That's a great opportunity that we don't get in a normal academic career, I don't think. And I'm always interested in figuring out more and better ways to connect with the public in general. And when I say the public, I guess I could say I'm part of the public because I don't have the, the rigorous academic background in ecology like you do. But regardless, I think there are transferable skill sets. And I'm wondering, how do you flip the switch in going back and forth between writing academic papers and writing for the general public? Like it's a, it's a totally different process and mindset, I would suppose. It, it is. And uh, I, I would say that writing the Books for the public is sometimes extremely more creative. I enjoy coming up with the idea and I, I work with a couple of publishers that are really wonderful and they provide a lot of guidance, but it's really, it's trying to distill down some of the more academic content into a translatable language for the general public. And it's, I think I hopefully write with enthusiasm because I, I am enthusiastic about the topics and I really do feel like popular books are a great way to engage broader audiences. So I, I think I enjoy writing them and I hopefully that reflects in how they're read by the general public that they're, they come across as being informative and enthusiastic. And for, for me, it, that enthusiasm, it's a great outlet for my enthusiasm. I just, I, I like doing it and it, it's a different creative process than working on a grant or writing a scientific publication. It's a different outlet for me and I really enjoy it. Yeah. And I was looking at a few of your books. Uh, one in particular was, forgive me, I, I can't recall the exact title. Was it Backyard Bugs? It is Backyard Bugs. Yes. Yeah. And you have a really, I like the balance that you have between some of the really charismatic ones that are eye-catching and the common ones that you'll be more likely to see. And I think that it really is, is helpful to demystify the way you've laid it out, what these insects are doing. So that's a really cool book that I recommend people check out. And I'm curious, if which other ones have you found in your catalog of so many that maybe been surprised by in terms of the feedback or traction that they've gotten? I, th I think the backyard bugs and the insects and bugs for kids, I've, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from parents and even a few kids that have contacted either me or, or my publisher. And that's, I think, particularly rewarding. You get the feedback from a younger individual that it excites them and turns them on to nature because then hopefully that your book is being used and it's actually 
resulting in something positive. And so I really like that. I, I do also get a lot of feedback from homeowners or gardeners about some of the landscaping books that I've done, like the Native Plant Gardening for Birds, Bees, and Butterflies series. And that's a different type of feedback, but people, I think, especially now through the pandemic and even before, they've, the, they've become more focused on what they can do in their own landscape to attract wildlife and realize that it's a great place to enjoy wildlife. You don't have to go to a distant state park or natural area that they can attract and view a lot of wonderful organisms just you know by walking out their back door. And so I think that's also really rewarding is the fact that we can make a difference in our own landscapes in a positive way, especially with the rapid biodiversity loss that we're seeing on the planet. And I'm thinking here about how in my neighborhood anyway, I've seen during the pandemic, a few of these lending libraries pop up in people's front yards. They'll put up this little box that you can take a book, leave a book. And we really should populate all these little neighborhood lending libraries with books like this to, to help people connect. And for those kids out there, maybe that don't know that there are these resources, they'll stumble across it and grow the next generation of nature enthusiasts and entomologists. Yeah, I think for most people, they don't even realize what diversity they might have in their own landscape. They think to find really interesting organisms, I have to travel some to some remote area, whereas you go out in your backyard, you look at some flowers, you turn over a few rocks or look at a dead tree, and you can find all sorts of really amazing creatures right there. Even walk out at night if you have a porch light and see what insects and even other organisms come to that light at night. It's pretty fascinating. I think it's a world most people don't pay a lot of attention to. So if they just look a little bit more, they'll be amazed at what they might see. You mentioned that creativity is one of the things that you enjoy about writing these books. And I've seen you partake in many other creative outreach efforts as well, including one with a local brewery. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're doing there? Yeah, I think most people don't think science is creative, but I went into science because it is creative. And I work at a outward facing institution, the Florida Museum of Natural History, where we have a mission to engage and teach people about the natural world. So I'm always looking at ways to connect people in unique ways to information or the natural world around us. We worked with a, a local brewery in Gainesville, Florida, to come up with the idea that instead of having people self-engage and come to the Florida Museum, we should go where they're going and where uh, they go for social interaction. And so we worked on a partnership where we would develop butterfly beers, themed beers after some really rare butterfly species in Florida. And we started with a beer called Schaus's Stout, which was named after one of the rarest butterflies and a federally listed species in South Florida, just as a pilot batch to see would this actually work. And what we found is that a lot of people really loved the idea. They learned in the process, the brewery increased their sales. So from there, we, we kept on going and we subsequently have done six butterfly beers, and including one that we actually went out into the field and we we swabbed the butterfly for yeast and actually used the yeast in the brewing process. And so we're always trying to come up with new ways of trying to push the envelope a little bit. But in the process, we do outreach, we sell merchandise, we the brewery cans those beers and we have information about the butterfly on the can. We've actually even used augmented reality on the can to uh, get additional information. And we've just found it to be a great way of engaging the public in a highly fun social endeavor. And, uh, and in the process, we've raised you know, thousands of dollars to support conservation. And our next beer that we're going to be launching in 2022, actually on September 30th, 2022, is our first national beer, or we hope to be our national beer. It's, it's a beer themed after the monarch called Rain. And the campaign is Restore the Reign of the Monarch. And the goal here is to raise enough money nationally to plant a million milkweeds in support of monarch conservation. And we have some great partners like the Xerxes, the, the Xerxes Society for Invertebrate Conservation and other institutions around the country where we hope to really make a, a deep dive into raising money for monarch conservation. So it's a creative process. It's a unique way of reaching the public. And it's a heck of a lot of fun in the process. I'm sure there are at least a few people listening that will be curious and trying to acquire some of these beers. Do you know, do they ship or do you have to be there locally other than this, other than rain, which I guess sounds like you're trying to distribute nationally? Yeah, no, the, they're local beers. So they are at least periodically throughout the year, different beers here in, in Gainesville, but they do not ship, unfortunately. Mm. And depending on the timing, 
I am going to be publishing an episode all about milkweed here within the next couple of weeks. I, there were some researchers from Augustana University in South Dakota that are looking at the common and showy milkweed and hybridization mm -hmm. and some of the genetic differences that exist. So for people listening and curious about the monarch, that should be an interesting episode too. I would love to hear more about the Shouse's swallowtail because beyond just promoting it through this cross collaboration with the brewery, I know you've been doing a lot of research as well. And as I understand it, as you said, it's a federally listed species. Can you tell me a little bit about where it lives, uh, why it's endangered? Sure. So this is actually our only federally listed swallowtail butterfly in the U.S., and it's found only in southeast Florida within a few islands of Biscayne National Park and on northern Key Largo. And it's, it's a very large butterfly, looks very similar to the giant swallowtail. People have seen that in their yards, it's kind of a brown and yellow striped butterfly. And it inhabits this really unique system called tropical hardwood hammock, which is an upland community. And of course, with the development of the greater Miami area over the last during the last century, a lot of that upland habitat was developed. So it it now is found only within these kind of pockets of tropical hardwood hammock that are in conservation within state or federal lands. And it's been a species that has had ups and downs. It's a very volatile species. Its population goes up and down from year to year a little bit. And in 1992, is actually its habitat was directly hit by Hurricane Andrew when it uh, struck Southeast Florida. And at that point, we actually started a captive breeding program for that butterfly and reintroduced individuals back into the wild. And the numbers went back up. And then some of our funding fell off. And during the early part of the 2000s, not much was done about this butterfly. And then we worked with a number of groups in Florida, state, federal, local agencies, citizen scientists to conduct a range-wide survey for that butterfly in 2012, and we only found four individuals remaining in the wild. So at that point, it was critically endangered, and we really thought we were watching an extinction event happen. And as a result of that, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service declared it basically an emergency rule that allowed us to take individuals back in to captivity, both as an assurance population in case the butterfly would actually go extinct in the wild, but then also as a nucleus for captive breeding. And we work with a bunch of partners over the last really seven years to reintroduce this butterfly back into the wild, combined with some habitat restoration and other work by our partners. And this past year, we recorded almost 1,700 individuals in the wild. So a, a huge increase from where we started in 2012. So it's trending the right direction. And we've also had some positive impacts. We're actually working to establish it in several new locations where it previously has never been found for the last 50 odd years. So we're making progress. So in many ways, this is a success story of a project, which you don't always have many good examples of positive work. Unfortunately, a lot of it's doom and gloom. This is actually a really positive story. And one also side note is we work a lot with the Florida parks and with community scientists. They do most of the monitoring on northern Key Largo. So it's a great example of how citizen scientists are actively involved in monitoring this critically endangered butterfly. And, they, and these habitats are hot, humid environments where they don't spray from mosquitoes. So they're not like going out to a beach in the Florida Keys, that these are challenging environments to work and these citizen scientists are really dedicated. So it, it's a great example of the kind of the mantra, it takes, it takes a village to make something happen. A lot of great partners, citizen scientists, great people from my lab, it all comes together to, uh, to now show results for this butterfly. On the citizen science aspect of this, it sounds like like it's, it's not a casual observation sort of citizen science. It sounds like there's a protocol that's being followed. Can you tell me a little bit about what that looks like and how a survey would look to an observer? Yeah, there, there definitely is. So these are our lands all under conservation. They're pretty remote. Access is pretty challenging. So basically, we have community scientists go in the field and they essentially walk transects. They're paired individuals. One's an observer one's a recorder, and they walk transects, either kind of meandering or actual physical line transects, and they record what they see. And most importantly, is they record their start and stop time. So we get a, a measure of total effort. And from that, we can get an index of abundance for these 
these butterflies. But these are, again, really dense forests. They're hot, humid environments. Right during the rainy season in, in the early summer, you're out there with really challenging weather environments, hot, humid conditions, thousands of salt marsh mosquitoes. It's not a casual uh, walk through the woods. So it, these folks are super dedicated individuals. And I'm just uh, really uh, thankful that we have such a wonderful cadre of people that are willing to do this and provide extremely valuable data back to us. I'm sure it feels really good to them to actually see the results of their efforts for this species. And then you said it's in South Florida only, so it's not found in any of the neighboring Caribbean islands or anything like that? There are relatives of this butterfly that are found throughout the Caribbean, but this subspecies is really only found in Southeast Florida. So it's it's always been limited. It's always been fairly uncommon because it is a specialist of that habitat. But as I mentioned earlier, it's an upland community. So its habitat has become eroded away over time by human development. And right now, of course, because it is limited in in space, we are increasingly worried also about the effects of climate change, either with how it affects the, the weather patterns and also how it affects the frequency and intensity of tropical cyclones. Because one Andrew-like storm hitting some of these locations, again, could really potentially wipe out many of these populations. I think you read my mind because that was literally my next question in terms of the current distribution and whether there's sufficient redundancy for a large storm like that. It sounds like maybe not. And, and then I guess uh, the related question would be, how important is connectivity between different populations of this butterfly? Yeah, that's a great question. Right now, it occupies a pretty limited geographic range where in theory, one large storm like Ida that currently hit Louisiana, it could provide pretty significant damage to all the occupied area of this butterfly. So the goal of the recovery plan for this butterfly is to extend the geographic range to try to establish new populations that are a little bit more spatially discrete from one another. But of course, that also then means these populations should ideally be connected. And so what we're doing right now is we're actually looking at this from a genetic point of view. We're, we're sampling non-destructively individuals across the range of this butterfly and also going back through collection specimens back in time to the 50s, 60s, and pre-Andrew times to look at whether the genetic diversity has changed over time, whether we're seeing signatures of bottlenecks from large events like Hurricane Andrew or longstanding drought and how this could affect our recommendations for management and ultimately how much gene flow is currently happening between these really true island populations. We know this butterfly can move across water barriers, but we don't really know how frequently that happens or how far these individuals can actually move on their own. So that will inform where we establish new populations and Ultimately, whether we might need to readily translocate individuals manually across some of these locations to have any type of reliable connectivity. Yeah, I'm just trying to imagine what it would be like to be the butterfly. And if you don't see your preferred habitat and host plants and, and things like that, it's a shot in the dark if you're going to disperse. Like, how do you know which direction to go? Yeah, it certainly is. And so, you know, it's a, it's a worry for us about this, but right now we're just trying to establish new populations. And I think then we, we can worry about the connectivity a little bit later on, mm -hmm. but we, we really want to look at ensuring that we can continue to expand the number of populations out there and we reach some sort of self-sustaining level with the populations that currently exist so that we don't have to constantly go back in and you know manipulate the system. So uh, one more question, I think, on this topic, you mentioned that one of the pressures here is the constant development into their habitat. Does that mean that homeowners that perhaps live in what used to be the range of the Shousa swallowtail are able to do something with their own property to help? Is there a role to play for homeowners in what used to be the range of this butterfly? Probably not directly, because this is a very specialized habitat and they like the more intact tropical hardwood hammocks, which are diminutive forests that have a lot of trees and shrubs from the kind of Caribbean origin. And there's not a lot of development around the existing areas where this butterfly currently occurs. And 
Luckily, fortunately, pretty much all the area where this butterfly currently occurs is under conservation. So that issue of habitat loss isn't so much of a concern right now. We're concerned about other impacts, you know, invasive species, climate change, tropical cyclone events, things that might impede the recovery or present a catastrophic impact later downstream. Okay, got it. And well, I'm happy to hear at least that those habitats are under conservation. So that's a huge win in and of itself. So one broad topic that I'm always curious to look at is the non-traditional landscapes when it comes to conservation. And I know you've done a lot of work in a number of non-traditional spaces to help mitigate biodiversity loss. There's a few areas I think you could take this, but can you tell me a little bit about your outreach efforts in raising people's awareness for these lands? Yes. So my lab's been increasingly interested in these kind of non-traditional conservation spaces, because as we lose biodiversity, we're realizing, of course, that the lands that are under conservation aren't enough, that we need to recoup resources on a variety of other lands. And I, I think we should all view the spaces that we occupy as humans as all landscapes really do matter, that what I do in my yard, what I do in my neighborhood, the lands that are managed around our neighborhoods like roadways, utility easements, urban spaces, these all can provide resources for wildlife and ultimately create more livable spaces that are beneficial to humans and wildlife together, get people to connect to what nature get out. And there's increasingly information and research available that these spaces are important for human health, for mitigation of climate change, for carbon sequestration, for so many different benefits. It's increasingly important that we understand and we manage these landscapes better because after all, they are managed landscapes. Roadsides are managed, our properties are managed. So the changes, the choices that we make can really be important. And it doesn't mean like you have to rip out all your vegetation in your yard, but simple changes like increasing the plant diversity, planting more native vegetation, diversifying the types of blooming plants that you have in your yard. We know that this can provide benefit, particularly to birds and insects, reducing the the lawn space that you have on your property, maybe making it a little bit more native as you go along, all this makes a big difference. And it can reduce the cost of maintenance in your yard. So it can help your bottom line. It can reduce the irrigation that you need to provide. It can improve your property values. It can increase the beauty uh, and enjoyability of your landscape beyond just providing resources for wildlife. So I think we have a an obligation to try to improve the landscapes that we can make a difference in in our own livable spaces. We work in in urban, suburban spaces. We work along roadsides and utility easements. And what we're finding is that these are really valuable spaces, especially for insects, because they don't need a lot of space. Uh, little changes can make a big benefit. We, we work with, as an example, the Department of Transportation here in Florida to evaluate how roadside mowing and the frequency of that mowing affect affected insect populations and the floral resources available to them. And what we found that is that simple changes like small reductions in mowing frequency yielded significant impact to the number of insects that occupied those spaces and the amount of floral resources that were available for these insect populations. So it's not like an all or nothing, like mowing or not mowing, but simply reducing the frequency which then, of course, means more blooming plants along the roadside for drivers to enjoy. It, it's a, it seems like a no-brainer type of best practice. Absolutely. And I was thinking back to a short road trip that I did last summer, and I stopped at a lot of the roadside rest, you know, the rest areas that state departments of transportation erect uh, to give people a rest, and really enjoyed looking at the wildlife in those small spaces, especially the insects. And I also realized at the same time, I was looking at how they were managed and there's a lot of room for improvement to your point. Like they, they could probably cut back on some of the management and it would be just as restful of a space, if not more so, because it would be more interesting. There'd be more happening there. So I, do you have a sense for, based on your work with the Department of Transportation in Florida, that's one data point, but do you see other states adapting some of these principles as well? 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of interest right now driven by the monarch and monarch conservation, but increasingly the importance of pollinating insects. And and many states also are seeing that there is a lot of other benefits, like in Florida, there are, there are roadside driving tours. There, there's maps in certain areas of Florida where if people want to go see wildflowers in bloom, that they can do that. And that's created kind of a local ecotourism opportunity that has benefited local businesses. So there's a lot of upside to some of this change of practice. And I, I think many institutions, organizations like departments of transportation, utility organizations, companies, they're realizing that there's a lot of upside to just changing some of their practice in a positive way for the environment and the the potential benefits it can provide to the spaces they manage and the kudos they get for doing this. There's, I I think nobody wants to have a practice that's going to do harm to the environment. They they don't want to do this. So they just need some guidance and help uh, along the way. And that's where kind of the research community comes in. It can provide some guidelines, some proven best practices to improve these landscapes for everybody's benefit. And even in, in urban landscapes now, there's a lot of interest in creating urban corridors and green space for urban dwellers to connect to nature, to have livable spaces. And, and these are increasingly important for wildlife as well. So I think we're realizing that there, there's a lot of improvement that can happen out there. And it's slowly but surely moving that direction. I really like the idea of tying some of these efforts into ecotourism and creating trails and stopovers. The birders have done a great job in doing that in a number of states. And I'm sitting here thinking like, why not have a milkweed trail in some of the prairie states? Or there's a number of different creative ways that you might catch at least a few people's interest and create more of a self-reinforcing process. Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, roadways are great. I, as a kid growing up in Wisconsin, roadways were a fantastic place to find insects and really unique plants because in many cases, there there wasn't prairie left in southern Wisconsin readily, but you could find kind of remnant prairie pockets along roadsides because they were just ancestral areas where these plants were maintaining populations and the mowing mimicked fire. So there was regular disturbance. And you can find really interesting plants and insects along these spaces. And many of these roadsides were beautiful when they were in flower. So it just seems to make sense that this is an opportunity, not a detriment, that roadside management should not be something that's viewed as a negative. It should be viewed as a positive. And roadways are the most visible landscape for most Americans every day because we, what do we do? We get in a car and we drive someplace. Why not make these roadsides beautiful, attractive, and beneficial for wildlife in the process. Yeah. And having that positive reinforcement really helps to counteract sort of the psychology or sociology about what we expect to see along a roadway. I think a lot of people expect to see a manicured grassy area, and and that's probably not the best for us and the environment in the long run. So you talked a lot about homeowners as well. And I saw that you're working with the, you're working on, I should say, a plant labeling initiative to help homeowners. Can you tell me a bit about how that's working out? Yeah. So one of the projects that we we started in collaboration with several other faculty here at University of Florida is the idea that we would develop a wildlife-friendly plant certification process because when homeowners go to a big box nursery, they're challenged by a lot of misleading information. There might be plant labels that have a butterfly or bird on them that would lead the homeowner to think, well, that's a good plan for attracting butterflies or birds, when in actuality, it might just be the name of the nursery. It, it might be really misleading. Or there are plants that, like tropical milkweed, as an example for the monarch, but many of these plants are treated with in- systemic insecticides, which render the plant pretty unpalatable or toxic or dangerous to monarch larvae. So what we're trying to do is is come up with kind of a two-pronged approach, evaluating the chemical inputs during production so that we develop plants that are wildlife safe for the organisms you want to attract. And then also coming up with some way of evaluating the actual attractiveness of these plants to say pollinating insects. So if you would eventually go to a, a nursery and you might have a UF then wildlife certified label that would provide some easy kind of window shopping, if you will, that this plant has been evaluated, it's safe for wildlife, and ultimately it's rated for wildlife attraction. So it gives you a reduced list of species that you need to sift through 
an easy way of making choices for your landscape in a way that you can be guaranteed that these plants are going to be valuable and safe for wildlife. And so that's the ultimate goal. And we're in early days of that certification process or that kind of pilot work where right now we're really concentrating on the the chemical inputs during production to give plant growers alternatives because they need ways of producing plants and combating pest problems. But we want to make sure that when these plants go to market, the the public can safely buy these plants. And and when they put them in their landscape, they're not going to be detrimental to the insects or the wildlife they want to attract because that's the last thing a homeowner wants is to to do harm. They're, They're there to provide a positive benefit and enjoy in the process, not harm the very wildlife they're trying to attract. Yeah. And to your point, sometimes it's really hard to tell if you're doing harm because you have no idea if there's a systemic pesticide in that plant. And when I first learned of the concept of an ecological trap where a pesticide could, could form a trap, you might attract this organism and then poison it in the process of doing that. It was really eye-opening. And my own experience then after learning that was I started asking about pesticides at the nurseries and even the big box nurseries, you just, I think, assume <laughs> that there's pesticides and even the smaller nurseries had trouble answering because there are, are middlemen, you know, so to speak, in the process, and they don't always know exactly how their growers are doing it. So do you find the growers to be enthusiastic in this endeavor or, or more of a willing participant? Or what's your experience been with the growers? That's a great question. I don't know about enthusiastic. I think I'm going to frame it from the side of, I, I don't think growers want to do something negative. They don't want to harm the wildlife that they're growing the plants for, but they do realistically need a viable way of dealing with pest problems or disease problems on the plants that they grow. And they have pretty narrow margins of profitability. So it has to be something realistic and doable for them. And that's the intersection we're trying to evaluate in this project is how do we provide effective pest control at a level that will give the growers some good tools to use, but on the homeowner side will provide plants that when purchased are going to be as safe as possible for the wildlife. And so I I think both sides want the same thing. It's just coming together and coming up with a compromise of how do we get to that point? And I think most of the growers realize marketing plants for wildlife is an opportunity. There's a ability potentially even to upcharge for plants that are at a premium for the general public for wildlife attracting plants. So they see it as a market opportunity. We just need to give them the correct tools to be successful in achieving that goal. And we also need the public to to be astute. You mentioned you you don't know when you go to a nursery what has been used on those plants. So the public can ask the nursery professional. They don't know you can use some simple kind of visual tools. You can look at the plant and if you see insects on it or you see any feeding damage on it, it's a pretty good sign. It's probably okay uh, to purchase. If you see a perfectly clean plant that's pristine, that has no feeding damage, no insects on it, that's probably a warning flag that, hey, that plant probably has been treated with something that's still active in that plant that's preventing an insect uh, munching away on it. We might want to steer away from that plant for for my landscape, at least for the time being. I, I like that point of view. And it reminds me of what a Dr. Talamy in some of his writings has said that the leaf damage that you have, you really only see it up close. And most of the time you're not looking at the plants like you are in the nursery. You're looking at them from 10 feet away, 20 feet away, maybe further. And it doesn't really matter at that point. And then you also have the satisfaction of knowing it's it's beneficial to something. And yeah, I see that in gardening a lot too. The the moment there's some leaf damage on a cucumber or a broccoli or, you know, something like that. Yeah, I think a lot of gardeners, you know, are, are suddenly concerned for their crop and usually it doesn't really affect it. So it's getting over that stereotype that we've all grown up with. That, oh no, if something's eating this, it's bad. I, I should get rid of it. It it is. And for like for butterfly gardeners that feeding damage is a badge of honor. They like to have their plants munched away. But even there, there's increasingly, I'm always amazed by that. There's an increasing disconnect that people want butterflies in their yard, but then they're amazed that 
this worm-like caterpillar is munching away in my plants and they want to kill that because it's defoliating my passion vine or my parsley and they don't make the connection that one leads to the other, that having that caterpillar will eventually turn into a beautiful black swallowtail or a zebra longwing or something that they really want to invite into their yard. And that they also don't always make the connection that by diversifying your landscape, you're providing resources for all the really beneficial insects that are going to provide natural pest control for those pest species you already have. So you're providing that kind of safety net of pest control already in the backdrop of your garden by making it diverse and providing resources for insects. I've said this before, but I have grown to like seeing aphids in my yard because I know a few days later, a whole bunch of other interesting insects are going to show up. The parasitoid wasps, the lacewings, the ladybugs, every everything else that's going to come in and feast on those aphids. And I think that's, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I think that's another great point that the benefit of getting out into your yard, looking around, and you'll see all these really amazing interactions. Like you said, the aphids will attract green lacewing larvae or lady beetles or other parasitic wasps that'll come in for natural pest control. So you're seeing all these almost like a little miniature safari in your backyard that you can encounter by just paying attention and looking closely. And I think that's when a whole new world opens up before your eyes. It's just, it's a wonderful experience. And that actually reminds me, I, the, we were talking about the growers and their narrow profit margins. I guess there's a couple of related things that sprung to mind. You know, and One is, it sounds like what you're doing is sort of like certified organic for food. Like you can go and there's some standard that's behind it and you're willing to pay a premium in that case. Do you, is there any sort of national effort going on or is this just still too much of a distributed abstract problem to, to have a national certified program? It's not, that sounds big. <laughs> no, that's, and that's really the goal of this ultimately is if we could grow it into a larger regional or national certification program, that's, that's where we want to go. Whether we'll make it there or not is we don't know, but I think there's an increasing interest in kind of the green industry within horticulture, but there still isn't a national standard for evaluating plants where there's actually a, a certified label, these plants at the point of sale where people can see that label and say, okay, I can buy with confidence that this plant actually has been evaluated. Uh, so that's, that's ultimately the goal. Of, of this project. And I think Florida is a great place because a lot of trialing of plants happen in Florida and California. So we could really be the hub of some of that effort downstream if we can get there. Have you found other people like yourself, either academics or environmentally focused folks that are doing this in other states? I, I'm just curious if you've been able to form a network of like-minded people and, and how I could help or how the listeners could help. There certainly is interest in this idea beyond Florida and in many states are doing something related. They're increasing the kind of the green industry market for plants. They're developing more focused lists of species that have benefit to different types of wildlife. And what we really want to do is put data behind that, because I think we could all come up with an example of anecdotally what plants we might recommend, uh, you know, in Atlanta, Georgia, or Miami, Florida for pollinators or birds or other wildlife. But if you are a homeowner, you have a limited budget and you're a nursery or a nursery outlet, you're only going to be able to carry a limited number of plants. So wouldn't it be great if you actually had the data to say, this plant is, or these are the top five plants for attracting native bees in my area, in my zip code, or these are the plants that will grow the best in Gainesville, Florida. They'll provide great resources for hummingbirds in my landscape because you're not going to be able to have hundreds of plants available for sale. You're just not going to be able to do that. So that's the idea is to provide a kind of that short list of highly recommended plants that are a no-brainer. I can go to a big box store. I can buy the five most highly rated plants from my landscape. If I have a sunny yard, here are the five best plants. If I have a, a partially shaded yard or a wet yard, here are the five top rated plants and, and give the homeowner an easy opportunity to make sound choices. And when it comes to biological control, do you see the growers adapting some of these same practices so that they have nature on their side to, to help with the pest outbreaks? I think some small growers could do that. I think larger growers, they're going to have a hard time not using some chemical means of control. But whether that has to be 
a systemic insecticide that has a long life within the plant or something more topical that has a shorter half-life. That, that's what we're trying to evaluate. We're trying to evaluate the types of chemical inputs and which ones actually provide the highest pest control efficacy, but might have the lowest impact on some of those herbivorous or pollinating insects that would use that plant. And it might also mean that they do it in a different way. They might use a systemic, but instead of then putting that plant available for sale right away, they might hold that plant back for a few weeks and allow that chemical to reduce in quantity within the tissues of that plant. So when it's available for sale, it has a lower efficacy against causing harm to herbivorous insects. So there's multiple ways of getting at this problem but we really do need to provide growers with a viable means of making a livelihood mm. and providing that pest control. So it's all this is something uh, that we're trying to evaluate. Would it be fair to say, too, that applying the same broad spectrum pesticide to plant A versus plant B, like one plant might, pardon the lack of probably proper terminology, but one plant might metabolize it faster than another plant? It's very possible, or the, the quantity that's being applied, the rate that's being applied, ensuring that growers stick to the label rate of the application. But what, what we might see is that the label rate that's recommended for, say, aphid control is actually much higher than needed to provide good aphid control. So maybe you could drop that quantity, that rate down to a 50% level, and it would still provide efficacious control. So th those are also things that we want to evaluate is, is that standard application rate what's needed to actually render high quality control? Or could you actually use less of that product and still have a, a decent level of control that's acceptable to a grower? And, and the same thing goes actually in the homeowner property. We have to hit this from two angles. We also have to hit it from the homeowner perspective that when they go out and they see aphid outbreak on their rose bush or their cucumber plant, that they try to use the least toxic chemical or pest control plan first and only go up to those systemic insecticides as a last resort because most pest control problems can be dealt with at a local level, if you're out in your garden, the best combat to a pest control is catching it early. So another great reason for going and exploring the plants you have and looking under leaves and exploring that garden, because if you find a small pest problem, treat it locally, treat it at that initial stage, and it won't become a bigger problem. I appreciate the nuance that you bring to this topic. Like so many things in life, I think we try to paint things in simple terms and, and rarely is that the case. There's always other factors and trade-offs. You know, I'm wondering back to your books, the native plant gardening series that you have, do you get into some of this pest control discussion in those books? Yeah, a little bit. We, and I have a, a new series of quick guides coming out on garden insects. And we try to talk about integrated pest management in those as well, because again, the best, you know, defense for most landscapes is having a diverse environment where you have a lot of natural enemies and natural pest control happening in that background. And so you don't, the last thing you want to do is uh, go out and broadly spray your landscape where not only are you taking out temporarily those pest problems, but you're also taking out all those good insects that are providing that background of pest control. So we have to learn to live effectively with nature and to ensure that we have a diverse yard and landscape. And, and a few insect pests are not a bad thing. What we don't want is, is large outbreaks that are going to really cause problems to certain plants or to, to a crop of, of vegetables that we have in our yard. But having that background of biological control is going to be you know really way more beneficial than going out and constantly spraying our landscape. It's going to be cheaper. It's going to be less labor intensive, and it's certainly going to be more effective. I, I guess this is maybe a stretch, but slightly related note about connecting with our yards, thinking about the biological controls that exist. We just had a termite emergence in my backyard a few days ago. And while it's a little disconcerting, I know they're out there, so it's okay. I, I just This is just confirming that they're out there. But we had this little family of black Phoebes that are flycatchers come in, and for Two days, they just feasted in the backyard. And that was like the, the joy of watching that more than offset the concern of seeing these termites come up from the ground out in the yard. 
And do you have any other suggestions for homeowners looking to make their yards more attractive to wildlife? We work increasingly on kind of the best practices for landscaping, because that's always a question that homeowners have is if I'm going to do something in my yard, what's going to yield the biggest impact to attracting wildlife or helping pollinating insects or attracting butterflies. And that's not always an easy question to answer. And what, what we've done is we, we tried to work actually in suburban yards. And we did, we've just finished up a large project last year comparing sort of the spectrum of traditional landscape yards, Florida-friendly yards, which are yards that have maybe a combination of native and traditional vegetation and maybe more plants, kind of water-wise plants, blooming plants, and then increasingly native yards, comparing those. And what we found is that in, in comparing these landscapes for insect attraction, particularly pollinating insects, is we found that obviously diversity of plants is important. There's no, no doubt. And some Native plants are, are beneficial, but there's also a lot of non-native ornamental plants that are equally quite attractive to insects. But the biggest kind of impact that we found is that the evenness of that community that you have really amplifies the diversity of insects that you attract. Putting this a different way is that if you have a, a yard that has 100 different plant species, one of each different plant, that's a very uneven community. But if you have, say, 10 species of which you have 10 representatives of those species across your land, that's a much more even community. And so the recommendation is stick with a few really good plant species that are attractive to insects or other wildlife that you enjoy that bloom throughout much of the year and then amplify those numbers of those species in your yard. And that will synergistically increase your impact for attracting those insect species into your landscape. So that one choice by increasing the evenness kind of outperformed all the other variables that we looked at for kind of a best practice of how do I make my yard more attractive to insects. And I think that's a good answer because it, it makes it simple for a homeowner. I can go to a nursery and I can pick out a few really good plants that either I've done my homework on, or I've talked to a nursery professional. I say, yeah, for my area, these are really good at attracting bees, butterflies, birds. And then I can maximize those plants in my landscape. And that'll provide the biggest bang for your buck, so to speak. Well, I love it. Anything that is simpler for the homeowner that actually works, the better. And I, I always say, a lot of having a good backyard habitat is also being lazy. Like you, you just don't apply the chemicals and you don't cut back as frequently. You don't rake the leaves as much and that, that helps too. So this kind of goes along with that. It's another simple step. To, to wrap things up, there's a few questions I like to ask and I never know what I'm going to get. Mileage may vary, I suppose, but if you could magically impart one ecological concept to help the general public see the world as you do, what would that be? Well, that's a great question. I, I guess I would may, maybe say two things. One is just to get out in nature and look around and explore because you'll see this whole new world open before your eyes. And it's just crossing that boundary and getting out there and looking. And hopefully that will encourage people to take a, a broader interest in nature and biodiversity. And, and then secondarily, I would say that no matter where you live, whether you're in a condominium in downtown Atlanta, or you have a expansive rural property, what you do in your landscape really matters. The choices that you make can be really profound in helping wildlife, in providing resources that can help offset the broader decline of biodiversity across the U.S. or globally, that our goal should be recouping some of this space and just providing resources, even if it's just a container garden on your patio, not only does that provide some resources, but it allows you to bring that wildlife to your yard, to observe it, to enjoy it. And that's half the battle. Really, no matter where you live, you can make an impact. And I think that's really empowering. And it's true. It, it's something we should all strive to do. And I would gather to say that if you do that and your neighbor looks at your yard and say, wow, that's really beautiful. And look at all the birds and butterflies that person has attracted. Hopefully it'll spill over and, and, and inspire them to do the same. And then we're, we're starting to create this 
network of green space throughout the neighborhoods that we live. And that's where the big impact really comes in. That's great. And I I wish I could do it. I wish I could snap my fingers and (laughs) make that happen. And you talked a lot about creative ways that you've connected with people through your books, through your brewery partnership. Do you have any other words of wisdom for effective ways to help people depending on where they're at on that environmental, I, I call it the environmental ladder of care. Some people may not even be on the ladder. Some people may be high up and already contributing to conservation, but everybody's different. And do you have any other words of wisdom as to how, how to help people ascend that ladder? I think making it interesting and fun and social is, is really important. If there are things that you can do with a group of friends, you can you know, do it with a company, coworkers, you can go to a school and the school children can work collectively to start a, a schoolyard garden or go out and clean up a natural area, make, make it fun, make it interesting and make the connection of why what you're doing really matters. And I think uh, that's all people really want is they want to know that what they're doing makes a difference. And you know, I think going out into community, meet, meeting people where they live is so important because only a small group of people are going to actually come to a natural science museum or a zoo or a state park, but going out there and, and meeting them in their communities and showing them what they can do locally to make a difference, that's going to help their quality of life. It's going to improve their community. It's going to provide ways for their children to connect to nature and, and have fun in the process and learn. I think that's what we all should strive to do. And I, I think that's one thing we've learned through my lab is just making it fun and interactive. And, and one, one program, just as a slight kind of deviation here, is we had, we had one program, one outreach program here at the Florida Museum where we had a staff member that was really loved insects and she wanted to pilot a, a way of interacting with people in a really unique way. So she would take an insect or a, like a large caterpillar and just go to downtown bars and sit at the bar and talk to people about the organism she had where, you know, while they were having a cocktail or a beer. And it was just a fascinating way of interacting with the public and all the really unique questions she got and the fun way of interacting with something that most people probably would never pay attention to in their own home garden. And it was just, I I thought it was just a great opportunity as an example of how to meet people where they are and have a conversation about a, a little bit of nature in a way that they would probably never encounter. That is creative. I don't know. I would have Love to have been a fly on the wall <laughs> listening to some of those conversations. So do you have any other upcoming projects or you mentioned there's a, a more books <laughs> in your pipeline? Anything that you want to highlight? We have a, a current project. We, we work with a, a number of rare bees, native bees down here in the Southeast. And we have an iNaturalist project going right now with these two species of plasterer bees. These are small, I shouldn't say they're small, they're medium-sized, really ultra-fuzzy bees that very little is known about. We would like to try to fill in gaps of information about where they occur, what plants they visit, uh, a little bit about their behavior. So we're trying to launch this project through iNaturalist to get people out and about in kind of natural communities to take pictures of these bees if they encounter them. And I think iNaturalist is a great vehicle to get people out and about to explore nature and to ultimately collect data that scientists can use, that kind of big data that is so important for answering ecological questions out there. But if you just go on to to iNaturalist and you search for plasterer bees, our project will come up. And it's these bees occur throughout the Southeast from North Carolina down to Florida. And we're just asking people to go out in September and October in the Southeast, a great time for getting out. Temperatures are cooling down, wildflowers are blooming. And if you see these kind of big, kind of golden, fuzzy bees visiting plants, just snap a picture. They're a little larger than a honeybee, a little smaller than a bumblebee. They're pretty loud. They're pretty interesting. But we we just need your help in filling in where these bees occur and documenting their presence or absence. So I'll definitely link to that project in the show notes. And assuming there's already observations in the projects, or excuse me, in the project, people could just click on it and see what these bees look like just by following that link. And and that's probably a, a starting point anyway to know what to look for. It, it is, yeah. And, and it's a good example of these groups of bees are, we, we think they're pretty rare, but we really don't know. And, and that's the great thing about insects is 
there's so many insects out there and so many of them we know very little about. So it, it's just pretty much every day when you go out, you can find something new. And I think that's the, the great thing about working on insects. It's literally an exploration every day and you can find out really new little tidbits, bits of information, new data about these fairly obscure organisms readily and make new discoveries all the time. People love novelty and you're right, insects are a constant source of novel discovery. If people want to follow your work online or otherwise, where can they go? So they can go to the Florida Museum of Natural History, to the Daniels Lab, and we have a list of all the projects that we work on. You can follow us on Twitter. It's a Twitter link off that website, and there's video of some of the work that we do. There's, like I said, links to all the projects, publications, you can see the lab, all the lab members and what they do. So that's probably the best way of connecting. And while you're there, you can also see all the other great projects that the Florida Museum and the University of Florida are involved in. As always, though, the show notes I have will be chock full of links to all of these resources to make it a nice one-stop shop for anyone curious. Jared, is there anything else that we didn't get to today that you were hoping to speak about? I don't think so. I appreciate you you mentioning the books, uh, my books, just because, like I said, I think it's a great way to uh, reach broader audiences. And so that's really my goal is to provide information out there that can be useful for individuals and hopefully turn them on to science and turn them on to nature and have fun in the process. Well, thank you so much for all of that effort over your career. And I look forward to seeing what's coming next. It seems like you're a steady source of creative ideas. And thank you so much for all of your time today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. We live in a world where sound bites dominate and true understanding is shrinking. Nature's Archive podcast digs a little bit deeper, hoping to help the world understand nature just a little bit more. I hope that this podcast has planted a seed of interest that will grow into something special for you. I record, produce, edit, and publish a show by myself as a personal passion. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and then please turn around and share this episode with a friend or a family member that you think might like it. I'm not asking for money or donations, just a gift of sharing. Thanks for your support. You can also follow me on Instagram at Nature's Archive or Facebook, also Nature's Archive. In addition to sharing information about podcasts at those locations, I also share some of my photography and some short explanations of what I'm seeing. Lastly, if you have any suggestions for guests or topics for me to cover, please email me at naturesarchivepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. And one last word, I want to make sure to give credit to the music that you hear in the podcast. The opening song is called Fearless First by Kevin McLeod, and the closing song is called Beauty Flow, also by Kevin McLeod. You can find his work at incompetech.filmmusic.io.